2 Samuel uh, 15. We're very much on the downslope at the moment with King David. Remember, his kingdom was uh, going very well, his rule. Uh, He then uh, made uh, a series of terrible mistakes, committed some terrible sins, and since then he's been dealing with the fallout. We're going to read some of that fallout here in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. Absalom, we're going to read about, is David's son. We're going to read until 16, verse 14. 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, that's just happened in chapter 14, David's brought Absalom back to Jerusalem uh, after he was a fugitive, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, Your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go go I know not where? Go back, and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. 
And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with, Ab conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Zebra answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? That's Mephibosheth. Zeba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Zeba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Zeba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw, threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zuriah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zuriah? 
If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went, and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would help us understand what it is that you want us to learn here. Please open our hearts to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do you do when your world falls apart? As you stand in the wreckage of your life, Standing in the the heartbreak and the ruin of sin, the kind of ruin we thought about last week, whether it's your own sin or someone else's or a combination of both, what do you do? How should you behave? How should you conduct yourself? 2 Samuel 15 and 16 is here to help us. This is David's darkest day. If the sun rose highest in 2 Samuel 7 with that wonderful promise of an everlasting kingdom in David's line, chapter 15 is pitch black. It's a downward spiral of sorrow and suffering as the same man who danced joyfully into Jerusalem chapters earlier now finds himself driven into exile and out of his own capital and by his own son. It is desperately sad And it reflects, doesn't it, the reality of life in a sin-sick world. This is the world in which we live, isn't it? The church, as someone else has said, isn't a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Sinners, that is, and the sinned against. Finding life painful and tearful. So all we're going to do for our time now together is to walk alongside the king as he leaves Jerusalem... And we're going to learn from his suffering and his submission. So firstly, the king's suffering. The king's suffering. Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 15 there, have a look, is the immediate cause of David's grief. When we met Absalom last week, we had reason to doubt his character as he ordered a hit on his own brother. And our worst fears are confirmed here. He, he gathers in verse 1 a king's entourage and then begins... A sly four-year campaign for high office. It's subtle. Uh, A handshake here, an offer of help there, a a pretended passion for justice and integrity there. Did you hear the irony in his words in chapter 15, verse 4? Did you have a look? What does he say in verse 4? Have a look down. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Says the man who two chapters before had behaved like a mob boss. Absalom doesn't want justice, he wants the crown. 
And that becomes very clear in verses 7 to 12, doesn't it? An easy conning of his dad in verses 7 to 9, who's powerless to control events. And finally, the conspiracy is unveiled in verse 10. Spies are sent across the land, priming the people to crown Absalom king. As soon as David hears the word, he knows the danger. Absalom is heartless and ruthless, and the only option is to flee. Now, there are bright spots. You might have picked them up as we continued through this story. Uh, For example, there's Ittai. He's a, a Philistine of all people. Remember their history. A Philistine of all people who swears amazing loyalty to the king, come what may. There it is, 15 verse 21. A beautiful promise. You, you could say a sort of summary of discipleship. Verse 21, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. A wonderful expression of loyalty. And then there's Abiathar and Zadok there in verse 24, and Hushai there in verse 32. Their, their commitment to David must have encouraged his heart. But as David and those with him are driven out of Jerusalem, as they they cross the brook in the Kidron Valley. It's the the sort of boundary marker of Jerusalem out to the east of the city. As he's driven over the boundaries of Jerusalem and out into exile, the mood is very bleak. You see that in verse 23 of chapter 15. Have a look. All the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. It's as though the ground itself is weeping weeping for David and his crumbling kingdom and for the dashed hopes of the nation in whom David, in, uh, on whom they put their trust in this once glorious king. Then see with me in verse 30, David climbing the Mount of Olives. It's just beyond the Kidron Valley, beyond the boundary. And possibly David would customarily come to the Mount to pray for maybe time on his own. But here we learn he comes to weep, verse 30. Barefoot and with covered head, these are signs of sorrow and despair and humiliation and shame. And then it gets worse. There on the mount, he gets word that one of his closest, most trusted counselors, Ahithophel, has joined the conspiracy. This is a real dagger. Personally, because Ahithophel had seemed to be a friend, an ally. And politically, because with Ahithophel's counsel and sway with the people... Absalom now seemed unstoppable. Have you ever experienced betrayal by someone close to you? It is the most painful thing. David writes about it in the Psalms. In Psalm 41, for example, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Can you hear his heart? Even my close friend. Or or Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Can you hear his heart break? But even that isn't the end of his suffering. You remember Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, lame in both feet, to whom David had showed the most beautiful kindness. He'd given him a seat at his table and a place in his family, and now comes news there in the beginning of chapter 16. 
Now comes news from the servant Ziba that Mephibosheth too has joined Absalom's cause. Can you imagine the pain of it? Someone to whom you've shown such tenderness, repaying you with such bitter betrayal. Now, we are going to learn quite soon that Ziba's lying. But David doesn't know that. As far as he knows here, it's just another betrayal. And then the icing on this terrible cake is this man, Shimei. As David continues through the darkness, out comes a descendant of Saul with a deeply held grudge against the king. And as David passed by, have a look at verse 7. Shimei is hurling curses at him. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. You see how Shimei interprets everything that's happening to David. He interprets his sorrow, verse 8. This is the Lord's repayment, he thinks, for slaying Saul and his house. Well, except David didn't do that, did he? We saw, as we moved through 1 Samuel, David had every opportunity to take Saul's life, and every time he refused. And on the day that Saul finally fell at the end of 1 Samuel, David was miles away. David was a sinner, we've seen that together, but this charge at least seems to be false. Another dark episode on David's dark day. I think what we have here in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 is an Old Testament picture of another very dark day to come. In John chapter 18, the Apostle John is recording the final days before the cross. Jesus has shared his final supper, the Lord's Supper, with his disciples, and he's prayed for them in light of his soon departure. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, we read, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at the base of the same Mount of Olives David had climbed centuries before. And it's not the only clue that Jesus here is deliberately walking in the footsteps of David's terrible exile years before. Back in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, for example, when Jesus predicted his own betrayal by one of his closest allies, which scripture of all the scriptures did Jesus choose to explain it? Psalm 41, David's psalm, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So here in David's darkest day is a picture of Jesus' darkest day. As the son of David suffered, suffered the agony of betrayal by someone so close to him. The heartbreak of rejection by his own people. Rejection by his own capital city, as it were. The injustice of false accusation. The shame of insult and mockery and the cross. The prophet Isaiah describes the Lord Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that means that when our own lives fall apart, when we stand in the wreckage, we know that he understands. A preacher and writer John Stott wrote about Jesus' sufferings in this way. He wrote, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. 
a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet. Back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. That last phrase, not just that he suffered like us. That's encouraging, isn't it? That he's been where we are and he understands. But it's more, he suffered for us. This is the great difference, isn't it, between David's suffering in 2 Samuel and the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Because David is here suffering in part at least for his own sin, but the Lord Jesus suffered for ours. As Isaiah explains, we began with these words from chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Over the past few weeks, we've seen in David a reflection of our own sinful hearts and the awful damage sin causes. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given us a king who chose to suffer for us. He chose to take the punishment we deserve to take so that we could be forgiven and restored. Isn't that an extraordinary love? Isn't he an extraordinary king? He suffered. And then secondly, he submitted. See that with me, the king's submission. But remember that this book of Samuel, from beginning to end, has been and will be about leadership, about the kind of leader Israel, God's people, needed and today still need. Hannah's prayer back in 1 Samuel 2 taught us that the key characteristic of that leader, maybe more than any other, would be humble submission to God. And we've seen David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 assert his own will, but here we see in his sorrow the king learning through suffering to submit again to God's will. There are little, little clues of it, aren't there, as we go through the story I take his conversation there with Ittai in verses 18 to 23 of chapter 15. Remember David's situation? He's in grave danger from Absalom. And if Ittai here is offering not only himself but his men too, and if I'd been one of David's men and I'd heard Ittai making that offer to David, I'd have begged David to say yes. Say yes, Absalom's after you. This guy's offering to help. You need all the help you can get. Say yes. And the David of a few chapters before might well have thought first of himself, and said yes, but slowly, David's heart is turning back to the Lord and his goodness. 15 verse 20, go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. His heart is learning slowly to trust the Lord again. But then more clearly, see his submission to God's will when it comes to the question of the ark. There in verses 24 to 29. Abiathar and Zadok are bringing the Ark of the Covenant along with David. Now, it is hard to imagine a more powerful political tool than the Ark. The holiest box in the world, the symbol of God's presence with his people. But David here sends it back. 
and see what he says as he does so. Verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Not my will, says David, but his be done. And when he discovers Ahithophel's betrayal in verse 31, he prays to the Lord. And when Shimei in chapter 16 is pelting him with curses and rocks, and Abishai offers to cut Shimei down, see how David responds in 16 verse 11. Halfway through, 16 verse 11, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. In other words, this is clearly part of God's will at the moment. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. As David stands in the wreckage of his kingdom, he's learning again to say, not my will, but God's be done. Just notice with me, would you, a few features about his submission. Notice with me that it's a submission that David learns through suffering. We hate suffering, don't we? We'll do anything to try to make it stop. But many of the biggest lessons we learn in the Christian life are learned in very hard circumstances. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, just look back over the course of your Christian life. When did you, when did you grow the most? When did you learn the most? When did you learn the most valuable lessons? I expect it was when things were tough. The Lord has a way of using suffering to train us to strip away our self-reliance and to teach us to trust him, to submit to his will. But notice too that David's submission is a hopeful submission. I think that's the sense of what he's saying there in 16 verse 12, the Lord may repay me with good. And not because David deserves it, but because the Lord has always treated David much better than he deserves. Isn't that true of you if you're a Christian? Hasn't God always treated you much better than you deserve? One of our natural responses to suffering is self-pity. Poor me, I deserve so much better. Self-pity breeds bitterness and envy of others. And eventually, if it's unchecked, hatred of the Lord. There's no self-pity here with David. And perhaps that's because he knows what he deserves from God. But the truth is God treats us so much better than we deserve. And this gives us hope in our suffering. The Christian can say, yes, my life may feel like a wreck. In some ways it's my fault, maybe in some ways it's not my fault. And I don't know the future in every detail. And at the moment it looks pretty bleak and I can't see how this is gonna work for good. But I do know God, I know his heart, I know his kindness to me in the past. I know I can trust the one who gave up his son for me. Did you notice, too, that David's submission is active? When he hears about Ahithophel's betrayal, he doesn't do nothing. At first, he does what we should also always do in any situation. He prays, verse 31, Lord, please help. Jesus prayed, didn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if you are willing, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. Submission prays. 
And then when Hushai appears at just the right moment, David sends him back to Absalom as a spy. Uh, submitting to God's will isn't doing nothing. It's okay to try to improve a situation. Submission can be active. But at its heart, in all of our praying and in all of our doing, submission says to the Lord, yet not my will, but yours be done. They're easy enough words to say, aren't they? They're, they, they're much harder to mean. We find it very hard to accept that we're not in control. Hard to give up our own plans and ambitions and desires. It comes much more naturally to us to strategize and to plan and to worry than it does to submit ourselves to God's will and plan. Often we submit, certainly I do, I find myself submitting as a last resort because I have no other choice. We can't heal ourselves or fix that relationship or unsay what we said, so we have no other choice but to say to God, your will be done. But it was different for Jesus. He didn't submit as a last resort. At any stage, he could have called down armies of angels to rescue him. He had the power and authority to blow his enemies away in the garden. And yet, for our sake, for us, he chose to submit to his Father's will. He let sinners arrest him and mock him and condemn him and kill him. He bowed to his Father's will. And he teaches us to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. There can be a great peace in saying that and meaning it. I remember a time in my own Christian life where I was really struggling with the consequences of some decisions I'd made. I was finding myself replaying those decisions over and over again, wishing I'd taken a different route, guessing and second-guessing what I'd done, what I could do to fix it in the future, how I could strategize and plan my way to a, a different context, different situation. And a wise friend suggested to me a, a simple mental exercise to imagine my life and how it had turned out as though it were kind of a pie chart, right, made up of different slices. Slices of things that had contributed to the way my life now was in this particular area. There were, there were the slices under my control. Uh, one slice might be uh, good decisions I'd made. Another larger slice would have to be bad decisions I'd made. But those would be the things I'd had some control over. Several slices, though, in that pie would be things completely outside my control like where I was born. Which of us had any say over where we were born? And yet how much of an impact that's had on the way our life's gone since? Or the decisions other people have made for us or things people have done to us over which we had no control. Much of that pie, it turns out, was outside of my control. And once I'd filled up the pie chart in my mind with all of those contributing factors, my friend suggested to me to imagine taking a piece of tracing paper and laying it over the whole pie and in large letters writing on it, the Lord. The Lord. In other words, for all the decisions I'd made that I'd guess and second guess, all the things I'd done, whether they were good or bad, and all the things done to me and all the things that had happened outside of my control, the ultimate reason my life looked at it as it did is the Lord. However much of a mess I've made, he's still in control. And if he's loved me enough to give up his son for me, 
then that's exactly how I want it. When the Lord teaches us to mean it from the heart, there is a great peace to be found when we say with the Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Well, there will be brighter days ahead for David. And if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and struggling at the moment, there will be brighter days ahead for you tomorrow, maybe in heaven, definitely. But while it's still dark, may the sufferings of the Lord Jesus for, for us become more and more precious each day. And may his example teach us whatever happens to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his extraordinary choice and decision to submit to your will, even to the cross. We praise you that Jesus had no sin of his own to suffer for or be punished for, but willingly chose to have our sin laid on him and to bear the punishment in our place. Father, as we take great joy and encouragement from his amazing love for us, Please teach us in his footsteps to say, not our will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name.